Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. We're kicking off episode one by speaking with one of the biggest names in mental health. Lucy Brogdon is the chair of the National Mental Health Commission and previously took the title of being one of the top 100 women of influence in Australia. From balancing life as a wife and mental health carer to former politician and Australian businessman John Brogdon, through to being the face of change for issues facing women and girls and workplace mental health and wellbeing, Lucy has a strong commitment to helping others and, as you'll hear, is a strong believer in following your passion. So welcome to Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name's Sam Stewart and I have with me today Lucy Brogdon, the chair of the National Mental Health Commission. Lucy, welcome to the show and thanks very much for coming along. Thank you, Sam. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so so tell me about your journey into mental health. Is mental health something that you always wanted to get into? Well, you're in for a long story, so go and get a cup of tea <laughs> settle back. I always wanted to do psychology through school. It was my passion. But sadly, I was born into a family of lawyers. My husband actually said he married a law firm. Oh, interesting. And at the time, last century, they, my parents were of the view that psychology wasn't a real thing. I should do something real. Yeah. Law, medicine or commerce. Yeah. I wasn't going to be a doctor. I knew I wasn't going to be a lawyer. Yeah. So I did commerce wow. and I hated every minute of it. But then um, through most of my 20s, I worked in banking and finance, places like Macquarie Group, etc. Finally, on turning 30, my husband said, can you stop whining about not working in psychology? Either do it or shut up. Wow. And so I did. Yeah. Um, so I went, I was working literally to the head of um, an investment bank and I said, I'm going to do psychology, happy to leave. Um, but I, I have to follow my passion. And he said, no, we'll make it work. So when I turned 30, I started doing psychology. Um, a few road bumps along the way, three children. Literally uh, 20 years later, I graduated in April of 2018 with my master's in organisational psychology. Wow, so 2018 you graduated? Yeah. Holy, I, I did not know that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so the journey was 20 years. 20 years. From the mental health uh, qualification Cation, that you came up with. Yeah. But in that same time, in that journey, not only did we have three children, but my husband had a very public um, suicide attempt. Yes. And suddenly our world turned upside down. And off the back of that, both realising that um, as awful as that was, we'd been given a voice and a platform. We both kind of chose to to move into advocacy and, and he's chair of Lifeline and now I'm chair of the National Mental Health I Commission. I mean, you're like a power couple. You're, you're both doing an amazing job and, and the stuff that you've been doing that I've read about um, just in the research for this conversation is uh, is pure, is really amazing. And, Thank you. And 
we are honored to have you in oh. Australia and doing the things that you are doing. Thank you. Uh, and so we thank you for that. Uh, so, so 20 years prior to that, you wanted to get into psychology. This is when you were working for Macquarie. Yeah. And they said, we'll support you in that. But you, so you still work for Macquarie with the investment banking side. Yes. Uh, did you, was there an aspect of psychology coming into it before you got, obviously yeah. there was before the degree came because otherwise you were just... Oh, absolutely. Student, it so. continued to, um, the work I was doing, I was working in the corporate strategy function. We were doing acquisitions and divestments. Yeah. Investment banking is a professional service. So what yeah. you're really buying is people. Yes. And the people that you buy, you need them to stay, want to stay um, initially and come over in that transaction, but you want them to stay. And so more and more of the work that I was doing was looking at attraction and retention and how do we, we keep these people and understand the people. So the psychology played into that beautifully. Um, the CEO recognised that we needed to understand those issues more. I then did my studies and while I was studying, moved in to create sort of the organisational development function that Macquarie now has. And so that's early 2000 that you, you then branched into that. Is that. Was that an early adoption for this mindset as, as far as the psychology uh, and, and wanting to look after the mental health in the workplace? Because I couldn't imagine that was something that everyone was doing at the time. Look, I think, yes, I saw the potential there that um, once you start to understand what motivates people in their workplace, you realise that so much of that comes from the elements of job and work design. And so that really steered me to say, well, look, I've, I've done all this study in, in finance and commerce and I understand how businesses run and I've seen how businesses run but I've also seen when they don't do things well in looking after their, their people. And so organisational psychology seemed a nice complementary fit to, to bring the finance background into the, the psychology world. Yeah, what an amazing uh, opportunity you recognised. And, and did you, when you look at mental health in the workplace, do you uh, see that it's a top-down approach? Do you, do you feel like it has to start with the leadership at the top and the culture from the top down, or do you think it should be driven from the employees and, and, and upwards from that way? Look, I think like so many things in workplace, it's got to be everybody. It's yeah. certainly really important to engage at the top. Yes. But um, that's to set the culture. The actual work and programs, uh, I'm a big believer that that needs to be co-designed and developed within teams. Yeah. If there's one thing I've learned from the mental health sector, it's that real power of a co-designed, um, co-created model, whether it's in a clinical service or in a workplace. You, you, the people using the system have to be part of designing that system to get good outcomes. But a mentally healthy workplace is all about good job and work design. I often say when I'm speaking on this topic, it's beyond, I have a hashtag beyond yoga and fruit bowls. Yes. You, know, you often go into companies and they go, oh, we've got yoga, we've got fruit bowls, yeah. we've got a meditation, Slippery blah, dip. blah. <laughs> we've, got, we've got an open bar. And you're like, that's great, but none of that is um, actually going to, to change anything in your organisation. Yes. Tony LaMontagna, that does a lot of work in this space, says you've actually got to address the negative before you can bring in the positive. Yes. So start there, start at all parts of the organisation and, and work together. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's fascinating to uh, corporates seem to be going more and more down this route now of mental health and looking after a holistic approach to their to their staff and their employees, so that they care more than just what they're doing nine to five in their walls. Um, do you feel like they have a, a sense of ownership or responsibility 
to look beyond the hours that they're at work and, and do, uh, um, do have to have that approach of looking beyond the workplace. Look, it's interesting. I think generally speaking, organisations realise that that blur and the boundary between home and work is, is somewhat gone yes. and that what might be going on for something, some, an employee in their private life has to impact what's going, how they remain at work, turn up to work and, and perform at work and vice versa. So I think there's reasonably good recognition there. What I think um, we're struggling to really cut through on still is it is still that yoga and fruit bowls mentality. Yep. If we start to talk about job design and work hours and things like that, you see them start to, to pull back a little bit and yes. look for the shiny things that easy will, yeah, and easy wins and to do rather than actually saying, you know what, we've got to sit down and have a conversation about this. Yeah. Um, Sharon Parker and her team at the Curtin University yes. and the Centre for Transformative Work Design are really leading the charge on how organisations can best do this and they have sort of three pillars around preventing illness, promoting recovery and then beyond that, the positive, where, where can you take it? And I yep. think that's really critical. And when people say to me, well, where do I start on job and work design? I generally say, go and have a look at the at Thrive at Work's website and the tools because they're all free, but also it starts at eight hours sleep. And, you know, I, I say in a public forum, I'll say to people, you know, how many people do their best work on three hours sleep? Yeah. Now there's often a hero in the room that likes yeah. to put up their hand <laughs> and it's like, well, good, you're the hero. <laughs> the rest of us need that sleep. We're and, human. And if we take ourselves out from being employer employee and think about the services we engage in, Yes. You know, do you really want to get on a plane with a pilot that's had no sleep? Yeah. Do you really want that surgeon or that um, yeah, yeah. operating on you with no sleep? Like, no. What, what function, what service are mm. you prepared to pay for yes. where someone's sleep, you know, so fatigued? Yeah, and, it's, and it's hard to kind of come up with something that no, it's a great point. <laughs> is, is appropriate. Yeah. And, um, you know, we need to to get away from that hero mentality. But then hero mentality goes both ways. Yep. So leaders kind of role model it a little bit, but um, a lot of employees kind of feel that that's what they need to do or that that's the way to get ahead. And, and so they can be their own worst enemy. But if we create that message that it's that sleep hygiene is really fundamental yes. to wellbeing, then that's a start. That's really interesting. So, I, so in about just before two thousand, you started your you started the journey into mental health. Yep. Two thousand and five, obviously, the incident with your husband. Um, did that make you uh, want to get into this a lot more, a lot quicker, and understand it a lot, a lot better? Um, I'm not really interested in the incident with, with John, but but how it affected you as well as a carer. Yep. So, look, I didn't um, obviously. I had lived in a silent panic before yes. John's um, first suicide attempt and I um, knew there was something going wrong. Um, in hindsight, I now know I did all the wrong things to try and promote help seeking um, because I was studying at the time. I often got my textbooks out and said, this is what's wrong with you. Uh, I would not recommend that as a strategy, <laughs> particularly to a male. Um, yes. Because the more I kept showing him what was wrong with him, the more he said oh, there like was anything wrong. Yeah. And then I went through something that a lot of carers um, will recognise that if he's saying he's okay, then maybe there's something wrong with me because wow. the universe didn't feel right. So yes. if he's 
if he's saying that it's all fine and I'm living in this panic, yeah. then maybe it's my problem. So actually when he, um, as awful as that episode was, there was a huge sense of relief that now we were in a care system. Yes. And now the recovery journey could begin because I guess I knew enough, didn't know enough to not tell him what was wrong with him, but yes. I knew enough to know that mental illness is, is treatable and people make a recovery. So yeah. there was kind of a sense of hope for me that here we are. It really um, didn't dawn on me for a number of years that I was a carer. Um, sort of, I understood that there was a concept of carers. I understood that there was, there's a carer's pension and there was all sorts of entitlements, but I never identified in that way. And yes. it was only in working with groups like um, Every Mind and, and working with them on the Partners in Depression program that I realised it was actually really important for me um, if I wanted to develop a position of advocacy to own the role of carer and, yes. and take that quite seriously. And um, I guess what I've learned as a carer is to be a good carer, you need self-care. And so I needed to, um, you know, John and I have worked out what my role as carer looks like in our relationship, yes. what my role of wife looks like, yes. and what my role as parent looks like. Yes. And sometimes one of those will have to, you know, that's yes. a movable feast, but yeah. we have to negotiate that and understand and respect. Um, it's hard to say it's set in concrete and develop, divide your time evenly. You've got to look at that and say, well, yeah. hang on. Sometimes I need yeah. to be more carer than yes. wife and sometimes yeah. we can put carer away and yes. be wife and, um, and understand that. But it's, uh, it's, it's so important. Um, and look, it's our language and I completely understand that other people have different models of care and, yep. and respect that. But for us, we see this as a team yes. approach to this journey, um, particularly now that we do have children growing up, that we need to, to create a safe place for them in the journey as well. Yeah, and so they're obviously a big part of that support network for John and, and, and yourself as well. Uh, and how old are your kids now? 15, 13, 11. Wow, okay. Good. So they've been on the ride from yeah, the beginning. <laughs> yeah, they have. And, uh, and what a support network. And do you believe that as, as a support network, the caring side of things, that it's critical to have that, the ability to, to be able to have uh, communicate uh, and, and use the close network by you to support you through this journey? Um, oh, we'd be lost without a support yeah. network. And um, I think what we've got is, and again, this is what I've learnt through owning the, the role of carer more is um, that we kind of need a support network for us and that um, John needs his support network, I need a support network. The kids are starting to get of an age where they're recognising that maybe coming to me is not really what they want to do and yes. that there are supports available yes. um, for them as well, whether it's through school counsellors or other trusted friends and, and things like that. And so I think it's... Um, Hopefully, we're, we're building a really healthy model yeah. for our family to navigate into the future. As a result of that event, uh, how has it changed you and the direction that you were on? And, and did it speed things up or did it, did it make you more involved in it all? Did you say, wow, this is broken, we need to fix this? It, Tell me about the, um, the reaction from the mental look, health Look, the, the reaction was um, initially angry yes. when I entered the system as to how hard it was. Yeah. I'm on so many fronts. And, um, you know, those serendipitous moments that yes. come in life. So um, there was one day when I was back at work and John was 
um, still not that well. And I thought I was quite outraged at the way the media had covered the story in particular. And I just kind of thought, surely there are rules around this. Surely, surely there are. So I Googled and came across the Mindframe people and um, literally cold look went onto their website and went, there are rules. Why weren't they followed? <laughs> so yeah. then um, got a little bit angrier. But I rang um, the head of Mindframe at the time, just cold called her. Mm-hmm. And um, this woman has now become, you know, a great friend in my life. Yes. And just last week we announced that she's going to work on the suicide prevention coordination. Yes. So the universe works in mysterious ways. Yeah. But I rang Jaylee Skian and I said, you know, you don't know me, but my name's Lucy Brogdon and blah, blah, blah. She said, I think I recognise you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I- I'm so outraged and I want to like, show. And she said, you know what? We have to get you through the outrage yes. to a constructive place. So, yeah. you know, let's stay in touch. And... Um, you know, forever grateful that we did. Yeah. And she came back to me and said, oh, look, we've got this program that we're trying to develop, Partners in Depression, it's for those that love and care for someone. Would you be interested? Count me in. And sort of since then really embraced the opportunities that that brings, but recognised, I guess, that, um, you know, we've, John and I have been able to get good support and care. We are in a pretty good place. I do have... Um, so that and I've got that time, capacity, and opportunity to use yes. what we've learned and apply it in a policy setting. Other people use their voices in different ways, but that's where we've ended up. Yeah, I mean, you you couldn't have planned this though, right? Like you, would I you, wouldn't would, have wanted to plan no, it, but no, not that incident. But I'm saying to <laughs> yeah. get to where you oh, are no. today. I yeah. mean, that that was never on your radar, was it? No, no, no. I mean, the things that you've accomplished already uh, in around 25 years or so, I, I, I believe. Is 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 just mind-boggling. Oh, thank you. And and uh, in 2015, I know that you were named as one of the most 100 women of influence in Australia. Yep. Begs the question to say, what were you doing in 2014? Were you not, <laughs> were you not Slacking off. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, what a, what an accolade to have. Uh, and then recently uh, this year as well, you're a member of the Order of Australia as yeah, part of the Queen's Birthday. So that's. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, that to look back over the journey that you've been on, I, I guess you would never anticipate that this is where you would be. No, I, absolutely not. It's never kind of how you plan it out. I guess it, it's interesting to think that I always wanted to somehow be in the mental health sector. I never thought this is how I'd get there, but that's, um, it is what it is. Look, I don't think um, many people do things for recognition, but um, someone did say to me, do allow yourself that pinch me moment of yes. enjoying the moment and, and seeing it for what it is. And I think um, those kind of individual recognitions are really lovely to have and, you know, the family excitement is all fantastic. Yes. But what's been really um, so much more satisfying in the last 12 months is to see that so many of the messages we've all been working on are being heard um, yes. and we're seeing that delivered in... Um, in different ways in the, in the suicide prevention space, we're actually um, got commitment to build the, the data set that's so important and so critical. Yeah. We've been calling on a whole of government approach to suicide prevention, and now we've got a whole of government, um, you know, Christine Morgan appointed as the yes. advisor to really deliver how that is achieved um, in the mental mentally healthy workplace setting. We've been working as an alliance you know, four or five years to try and get this message over that the role of the workplace 
in prevention and recovery is is profound and that's been heard. So to see these things starting to fall into place is incredible. Yeah, I mean, and you've been part of a lot of these key groups as well. So obviously you've had a heavy influence in getting a lot of these to the position where they are now. Uh, has it happened quicker than you would hoped? Has it happened slower? Is Because uh, we've had a lot of wins lately, but tell me, is it... Oh, look, it's been a slow journey. Yeah. And, I, and I am very mindful that I stand on the shoulders of many that have gone before yes. to get here. Um, you know, this is... It's on the broader public radar and it's on the government radar, but it hasn't been that way. And there have been a lot of voices working hard in this space for a very long time. And it's um, completely, you know, my hat is off to them for the work that they they did. But look, when the planets line up, you don't ask questions. You just grab those opportunities and run as hard and as fast as you can. So that's what we're doing. Uh, it's... Uh, Leadership is something that keeps coming up as well when I'm, I'm researching you and everything that you're up to. Uh, I know that you uh, you look up to the likes of uh, Alan Moss, uh, Wendy McCarthy, uh, and Julia Gillard, uh, yes. some people that you aspire to, uh, and talk about some really uh, influence that's yep. probably had an impact on you. And uh, who has been? Is there anyone else that's really been a key influence on on where you are professionally today? So many people. Yes. Well, it's really hard to um, pull them out. Some of those names um, are people that I've worked really closely with. And um, so I've had that opportunity to to not just hear what they've said, but to see them working, see that in, in action. And I think that role model behaviour is such a powerful tool when it comes to good leadership and to see the outcomes. I guess one of the other people that um, I've learned a lot from, particularly in this space, and it started well beyond my own journey into mental health, was working uh, with Dame Mari Bashir before she was Governor of New South Wales. Yes. She was a leading child psychiatrist in New South Wales, and she headed up the Juvenile Justice Advisory yes. Group in New South Wales, and working with her, and to see um, the way she could look on those young um, offenders in the system with such love and compassion and empathy and a desire to to help and work with them as much as she could, but also to turn around to government and and hold a line and be persistent and do that with um, not a lot of noise, just a lot of force. And I think um, sometimes people think you have to be all over the papers and making a lot of noise to affect change. Um, that's not my style. I guess I've learned one of the things in all of those people is that they're, they're They've got, an, they've got a capacity to educate, agitate and affect for change, but it's in a, um, in a considered way that is constructive and respects process, Yes, but can create that sense of urgency. Uh, that's amazing. Did, if, you, if you could go back and, and give yourself, say, 20 years ago and give yourself some advice, what, yes. would, you give, what would you tell yourself? Um, just keep swimming. <laughs> You'll get there. Just keep swimming. Um, look, um, we, we've had, I know this sounds really cheesy, but there's a funny Steve Martin movie called Parenthood. Yes. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, but I at have. the end of Parenthood, the grandma gives this analogy of, you know, you can live life on the roundabout going round and round in circles, or you can love the roller coaster. 
And yeah, wow. that, that really speaks to me. You've got to love the roller coaster of life because, you know, going down is really scary. Being at the bottom is kind of scary. Coming back up is exciting. And so, you know, embrace the roller coaster. <laughs> what a great movie and great piece of advice. I, I love that. With um, You've always had the approach that you're taking, even with this Connections, the 2030 yep. vision that you're doing. I know you've been busy going to regional Australia and, and, and parts of Australia to speak to the people at the heart of yes. uh, the challenges. This seemingly bottom-up approach, but, but getting one thing I think that's been really admirable about the approach is that you're going to the people that uh, are in the thick of it, that are people that yep. are having the challenges, living with it day to day, the carers, the community, yep. uh, the consumers. Uh, tell me about the approach. Is it something that's always happened that way or is it something that you uh, and the team really wanted to do differently this year? Um, look, since the Commission's been going, um, it was established in 2012, a big part of our work has been out in community forums. And, when we, uh, and what we found is that when we do our visits to, to any community, we often we get you know there's the the formal briefing pack that you get before you go in with all the numbers and the charts and the data and yep. you know reading that you'd think nowhere had an issue. <laughs> um, we then sit in meetings with a range of service providers and again you you kind of get some insight to what's going on, and we hear all of that and take the, their advice and recommendations. But we've always held community forums at the end of the day. And sometimes the briefings align with what the community say, but other times it's worlds apart. And I guess what um, we see is it's one thing to have service designs and models and, and all that sort of stuff. But if in reality that's not touching community, then we, we haven't got it right. It might look good on paper, but it's not touching community. And we've... Um, so since 2012, we've been out in community. So when Christine came on board and said we need to do this, we said, look, the gold will come from being out in these communities and talking to people. And, and it, the gold is just flowing and it's fascinating. Um, we've seen nearly 500 people. Yeah. There has been only, honestly, less than, say, 10 people that have talked anything to do with clinical service wow. in that whole consultation. The messages that people are talking about come from connections, connections to their family, to their community, how they can hold each other up, where that connection has supported them, how they've been helped to navigate a system is an issue. But we don't get people talking about the clinical system at all. And there's something in that yeah. that says, you know, we have to respect that there are health issues here. Yeah. There's a whole lot more going on for people. So does that excite you about what you're hearing so far? And I know you haven't completed the, the full journey around the regional areas yet um, to hear more about it, but is that giving you a sense of uh, refreshing that, it, that it's new, that it's something that you're going to be able to go away and say, hang on, we've got this a little bit wrong and upside down. Maybe we should be doing it this way. Is that, is that what you feel like it's going to come from? Look, I think um, a number of the people have been in the system a long time and people can see where it's got better. Yes. Uh, they can see where things haven't changed at all. And, and, you know, I share some of that frustration. I kind of put our own journey back 15 years and think what would be changed if we were starting today? And some things would, but a lot would be just as awkward and hard to navigate. 
But I think what's um, really exciting about this is what we're hearing on the ground is really powerful and it's very consistent. But at the same time, we're getting a message from the top, you know, for, from the Prime Minister to recognise that um, just in the space of suicide prevention that it's yes. going to actually take that whole of government approach and that he's committing to that gives me hope that when we come back and say, actually, it's a lot more than just health yes. that we need to tackle, that that message is going to be heard um, because we've seen that the sort of the top and the bottom are starting to speak the same language and probably that's where the power will come. So, so that part excites you of what lies yeah. ahead. You <laughs> I'm think very optimistic. Well, that, well, that's really good. Uh, do you um, do you feel like that the system's not necessarily broken? Like no. it's it's not it's not devastation. No. It's it's not bad. No. But we just need you just feel like we need to tweak a few things, get the get the communication flowing better across sectors, collaboration a bit more throughout the communities and the. The NGOs and government all working as one. What so we need to yeah we need the system to work better than yes. it currently is. I think we've got most of the foundation pieces well in place. There are some big gaps. Uh, we have nothing for zero to twelve. You know our children in terms of the system are really poorly served, and we know that actually the earlier we intervene, not just in illness but in the lifespan, the yes. better the outcome is. So to me, it's kind of a no-brainer to to have a children's strategy and an approach. So that's something that we're pushing for at the moment. Equally, at the other end of lifespan, I'm not sure that we really have, um, you know, older Australians well catered for in the system. And so taking that lifespan approach means there's two big blocks that aren't quite there yet. I think, um, and this is the language of public health, but in some of our vulnerable populations, we're doing better than others. Um, it's still a very mainstream approach to service and um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations and the community and their researchers are designing some really good programs and there's a lot to learn in that space. But for a lot of our culturally and linguistically diverse communities um, are not well served at all. And yeah. so um, I think the foundations are there. It's now time to make it, it broader across lifespan and deeper in communities. And I know you're well-travelled and you, you often go to uh, international shores and learn about what's going on over there. Has there been uh, an international structure from another country that you'd say, wow, they're, they're just, they're just, they've got it nailed? No, sadly, no. <laughs> okay. um, so what is, um, there's often that comfort that you often hear people when they join various lived experience groups go, oh, thank God I'm not alone. So um, there's an element of that at a policy level yes. too when you go to these international conferences and think, oh, okay, we're all struggling with the same yes. issue. There are bits and pieces that we can learn. Um, we work quite closely with our colleagues in Canada. Um, by the nature of their federated structure and ours, there's yes. a lot of complementary, not just the policy needs, but how it gets implemented. So yes. um, we give them some things we learn from them. Um, equally, our colleagues... In New Zealand, um, face similar issues, similar issues of culture, etc., that we can learn from. Um, I guess what we try to do is is make sure we're not missing out and we're not reinventing wheels that don't need to be reinvented. But we really are seeing that as you know, top of top quartile um, in this space, which yep. some people listening might think, well, that's not a good sign. Yeah. But actually, um, you know, we're doing pretty well yep. and. Um, we shouldn't be complacent on that, and I don't think we are because there's plenty of people agitating yes. for more, but 
Um, no, there's no magic answer out there. Do, uh, do you agree with this statement? It's not, it's not that we don't know what needs to be done, but how we need to do it. Do you, uh, do you, do you agree with that or do you feel like there's an element of truth to that or you feel oh, like, well... Look, I think 80%, 80-20, absolutely. Okay. There is, and this is one of the sources of frustration for me, is there is so much we know. Yeah. There's so much we know that actually works and so much of what we know works, we don't do. And um, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm yet to understand why that is. And often things that do work, we seem to stop doing. And I don't understand that either. Um, I think people are guilty of that in life in general. Yeah, right? I mean, how many right. times do you know what you should be eating, yeah, doing, and exactly. then all of a sudden we don't? But even at a systems level, yeah. there's, there's things that we know we should just be doing. Um, and I'm talking a lot about suicide at the moment because we're just doing this interview off the yeah. back of the Suicide Prevention Conference. But um, there's so many things we know we need to do in terms of um, early intervention and follow-up and things like Accessibility. That, accessibility that we just don't do. Yeah. And um, yet again, we're kind of looking for that shiny, easy thing. And it's not. Some of this is hard work. Some of it is getting um, different groups to work together and collaborate um, not so much collaborate, just work together, do their jobs together. Yep. And um, you know, in the fifth National Mental Health and Suicide Prevention yes. Plan, it's, it states that um, that state, uh, you know, LHDs, LHNs have to work with PHNs. Well, we see incredible variability around that. Some are working together and humming along and getting incredible outcomes. And on some things we go to, PHN and LHD have never met on some of these issues. Now, that, that was 2017. Wow. We're, we're well into this. We're nearly yeah. two years into it being signed. That's unforgivable. So um, I think we always need to be looking for more and, and support. You know, one of the things we're doing at the Commission is developing the national research agenda. Yes. But at the same time, we've just got to be doing some stuff yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. At what, at what point does the, the feet hit the pavement? Yeah. And, and translational work. And I think that's one of the big pushes at the moment is great to research, you know, everything, but it's got to actually be applied in the community. Do you think collaboration between the National Mental Health Commission and the states is, is very good? Is it going well? Is, do you feel like working together and, and helping each other? Look, yes, but not every state has a commission, so that's yeah. an interesting model. Um, I think we all get on very well and work where we can, and, and there's times where if one commission said, look, we're going to do a deep dive on this particular topic, the others go, oh, great, okay was on our work plan, but let's see what you've done. Let us know the results. Yeah, and we'll <laughs> share what we're doing. So there's some good work around that. We're doing some work on um, under the fifth plan. We have to do some work around peer work guidelines, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. New South Wales have done a lot of work, so we weren't starting from, from scratch. We could kind of complement the work out of New South Wales. I think there's still more potential to be unleashed leashed in the commissions working together a little bit more. Okay. With the uh, workforce, uh, there's opportunities now, uh, yep. especially with investment coming in uh, as a result of the pr uh, recent budget. Um, how, how do you, where do you see the opportunity for growth in, uh, in the resources for, for people in mental health professionals or where do you see that? Look, Sam, that's, that's the crux of this. This is where it's at. And um, so it's probably the workforce that I lose sleep over. Yeah. if I'm in really honest, yes, because I look at all these opportunities that are coming and I look at various initiatives that are announced um, 
and I just wonder who's going to fill these jobs. Yes. Um, the average age of a mental health nurse in Australia is 52. Yes. You know, and, and those of us that work in this sector know that they are really the backbone yeah. of the sector. So um, while I wouldn't want to put a capital C crisis on it, to me that's our crisis, that's yeah. our real risk point is the workforce in all of this. Um, we got some money, some money was allocated out of the MIEFO, the mid-year budget at the end of, la- at end of 2018 um, to, to start to scope out how we create a workforce strategy. And that's yeah. a workforce strategy that goes, embraces and stretches from peer work through to yeah. um, clinicians. And, but if we don't have that, and, and this yeah. is the, part of the issue is now that every, all the planets are lining up, uh, we had an example where one state recently announced school counsellors in all their schools. So that's sort of 800 psychologists that need to be found to work there. Where well, do they come from? Where do they come yeah. from? And they ran sort of headspace and said, oh, well, send where us, will we get them? <laughs> well, we're actually looking for 800 ourselves. <laughs> like, you know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a real issue yeah. is, is what we're going to do. And, you know, this, this then plays into things like the whole... Um, MBS debate that's going on around yes. how we structure those issues, who's in, who's out, what are we going to rebate. Yep. And as we've seen with the whole MBS, we have to be careful that we don't move workforces the wrong way because yeah. we create incentives for people to leave and, and come and go and they end up you know, where they might want to be, but is that actually where we want them to be? And so it gets very complicated and I think... Um, that that is a real vulnerability for our sector is just getting that workforce right, the skills of training, recognising the breadth of our workforce, etc. I know every uh, every level in the mental health workforce plays a big role. Do you see the the role of peer workers? I mean, it seems such an area that is becoming more and more relevant, yep. and, and carers, uh, social workers are really coming through. Do, do you do you feel like that's an area that is really going to be a key role in moving forward with some of the strategies that we're seeing wanting to be implemented? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I think where we're seeing peer workers, they are just, you know, they've got the potential to be a game changer yeah. in a lot of spaces. Um, it's And this is where developing the peer workforce guidelines is so important. And, look, I don't want to deliberately upset people, but it's really important um, from an employer's perspective. We have a duty of care across all our employees. Yes. And so we have a duty of care to to look after our um, clinicians. We also have a duty of care around peer workers as well. And and that's a point of tension at the moment, but um, you know, we'll work our way through that in developing the guidelines. But there is real power in that workforce, um, power in the social workers, power in the OTs, etc. Um, and then everybody working together equally in a care team is important. One of the things that frustrates me in the system a little bit at the moment is, well, no, it frustrates me a lot, um, is that sort of siloed approach. And we're seeing it through the work of the equally well kind of movement. But um, if I bring our situation to the fore, we have had to advocate for every aspect of John's health and, and looking after his mental health. That hasn't been neatly kind of wrapped up for us to access all the adjacent service that he might um, need or benefit from. And so 
kind of understand building the workforce more broadly, but equally helping them all understand how they work together. And you know, having only recently graduated in psychology, there is nothing in our training in undergraduate or in the masters that teaches you about a collaborative approach to working with other professional colleagues yeah. um, in the system. Equally and interestingly, there's nothing about using technology in, in care either. Well, and, you know, these are two big fundamental yeah, shifts in really our workforce. But um, you know, to meet graduates sort of not, you know, and you say to them, why aren't you using some of the technologies? Well, I, I don't know. Didn't know anything about it. I don't know how. Yeah. <laughs> and is that part of what I'm meant to do? So yes. I think one of the things we see is that um, pre-service training is, is fundamental to building up the, the future direction too. Yes. Do, do you feel, uh, as unfortunate as the incident was with John, do you feel that having that experience uh, and being on the on the side of carer and supporter um, and seeing someone so close to you go through a mental health challenge, do you feel that that's helped you understand uh, or, or uh, look at it from a different lens than you would have otherwise seen it as a, a mental health professional? Look, possibly, but I, I guess I guess, um, the more I get out, I, I'm, um, I haven't met anyone that's not touched by mental illness in some way. Yes. So I think um, I get a bit upset um, and, and I kind of feel like I straddle both sides of the conversation on some of these things, the, the consumer and carer advocacy and then the yes. tension the clinicians face. And I find it quite hurtful and disrespectful when... Um, the lived experience of clinicians is not respected. Yes. Um, you know, we've all got life's experience. Yeah. Um, direct, indirect, we've all experienced some awful stuff in some way or hard times. Oh, I, th I think we need to come back to a place of respect. I certainly feel that um, when I'm looking at big policy suggestions and service suggestions, I can sort of go, well, that's all great and the numbers add up and on the scheme of things that looks wonderful. Then I put myself into, yes. if I was to knock on the door, yeah. how would it work for us? And sometimes mm. I go, oh, yeah, that, that could be good. Other yeah. times I kind of go, yeah, it's still really hard. <laughs> so yeah, right. I think I can yeah. literally put ourselves in those shoes and go, well, what would be different? And, and that's kind of the test I use on a lot of this is that's all great, but what would be different? Yes. How would my experience yeah. be different and um, kind of just playing at the margin I'm not really into I think you're going to change something yeah make it a bit more substantial H hypothetically speaking if you're in a position of influence uh, in mental health yeah. <laughs> just say <laughs> just say I knew a few people <laughs> what would you what would you do to improve mental health in Australia if you had a magic wand if you had resources is there any one thing, and I know it's going to be a collaborative yeah. effort of everything, but is there any, know, look, if we can... Children. Children. Start Just with children. Focus uh, on the children. I'm not saying that everybody that's not a child is, is a lost opportunity. Yes. But you know, yes. our children, seriously, if we're going yeah. to do something for them, we know that um, the first 1,000 days are critical, the first 2,000 days are critical. Really, that whole childhood is critical. Um that's in the evidence, that's in our hearts and instincts, so we know that we've kind of got to do that. If we look at kind of the best buys economically, they continually come out that the best buys in mental health are parenting, trauma um, reduction and reducing adverse childhood experiences. 
Yeah. Like it, they just yeah. have sat at the top of that pile of things we should do for you know 20, 30 years. So children is <laughs> children, children, children. That's no, uh, and it's. Uh, yeah, I completely agree, and I think a lot of people agree with that, and uh, and I think you've hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, just a few quick questions before we finish sure. up. What uh, If you had a book to recommend to somebody uh, about uh, either mental health and wanting to pursue their career in mental health oh. or, uh, or about life in general to be uh, in a leadership position, is there any book that you've read that you've thought, well, you've really got to go and read this book? Um, so... When I worked for Alan Moss, he said to me, go and read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes. And I did, and it, it's a great read. Is that Stephen Covey? Uh, no, that's what? Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie, sorry. He wrote it back in the 20s. Yes. Um, it still holds true today. Yes. Um, so I great guess book. I kind of always say to that. And it, what's interesting about Dale Carnegie is he actually wrote a book about anxiety in the workplace. Again, back in the 20s. Wow. This, this, not, this is all old stuff. <laughs> like, I did not know that. Everything old is new again. Yeah. Um, you know, the first workplace engagement surveys and studies were developed by an Australian guy, a polymath out of um, Adelaide, Elton Mayo, who went to study at Harvard and worked in Harvard and did all the Hawthorne studies. You wow. know, so there's not a lot of new stuff going on. We just have to do... The basics, right? So, how to win friends and influence people, as trite as that is. Yep. Um, but I reread it if you've read it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I've got such a pile of books. I'm yeah. just a voracious reader. I kind of say, um, also love The Economist to try and keep a broad world view of what's going on. And they do touch on mental health issues quite a lot. So, yeah. Great response. And uh, two questions left. Uh, yeah. One is, uh, yeah, look, who is Lucy Brogdon? So who uh, I, I know that you're you're you've got your silver medallion. Yeah, uh, are you still patrolling beaches? Uh, tell me about the personal life. What, what do you do? What do you love to do? Well, Sam, it's interesting. Whenever people read my bio, I kind of go, oh, "I'm so over that." <laughs> um, and I, I kind of question why we read people's bios at events, but we, we it's become a convention, and we do. And normally, if I'm asked to introduce myself. I kind of say, look, I'm quite happy to be mother, wife, and the thing I really love is my surf club and surf boat rowing and patrolling. So and you and John are both still active, aren't you? Yeah, well, John's not so active, but oh. he's the patron of our surf yes. club. But, you know, yes, I patrol. The kids are in nippers. Our son's just done his SRC, probably do his bronze, our eldest. Um, in terms of a community that looks out for each other and supports each other, our surf club is just yes. Hill Gold Surf Club, big shout out, <laughs> is just gold. Yes. Um, we've been through a lot in the last um, 12 months. We've sadly had a young guy die by suicide at our beach earlier no. this year um, and a few other things. But the club is just open to learning, is there for people, um, yes. supportive. And um, so I guess yeah, surf life saving is it's kind of what keeps me grounded and in the sand. Okay, that's great. And uh, and what's the future hold for you? Where, where do you what do you see? I know I know you would never have guessed to be where you are today, but I mean you've achieved so much. Uh, I just uh, I'm sure everyone's wondering about well where can you take it and what, what do you uh, do? You still see yourself playing a, a really active role? Um, Look, I see myself as playing an active role. I think it's always good for turnaround, so I don't want to sort of sit in chairs for too long because I think you need to mix it up a bit. Um, and you're chairing a lot of things. I am. <laughs> I have a few chairs. Um, but I think, you know, um, 
can't even remember when my term finishes, 2021, 20, I think, I finish up. So, look, I think, um, I guess, watching good leaders and the people I've worked with and the people I respect and admire, they've always got an eye on the horizon and where that next opportunity might come from. One yep. of the things I've learned from my husband is you should never burn bridges. Yes. It doesn't matter how much someone annoys you or whatever, you just keep relationships going because who yes. knows what path the opportunity will come down so kind of be open to that and I guess um, yeah it's interesting in the visions thing we're looking at what's 10 years time and I suddenly yeah. realised all our kids will be growing up yeah, you and won't so kids <laughs> maybe that'll be peaceful I don't know <laughs> who knows but I think I look to it with optimism and excitement well that's really good well I've got no doubt that we're going to hear a lot more about you in the future and we're going to have plenty more opportunities to chat at some point in the future Absolutely. and anytime uh, we just want to say thank you for all the work you've done and, you. and all the work that you're continuing to do uh, it's really appreciative and you are a great example of uh, the epitome of leadership uh, in this role so we appreciate that uh, and thank you for everything you do on mental health and thanks for being on the show oh pleasure thank you Sam thanks, thanks for your interest <laughs>